Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, how are you, my friend? Well, uh, you know, so I live in London, and London's coming back to life, and uh, we're recording this. It, it's on a Saturday. So this afternoon, I went to um, I went to this venue in central London called Somerset House, just this beautiful um, kind of palace in the middle of the city for the London Design uh, Biennale. So it's basically a big design festival. And, you know, submissions from all over the world. This is going to be great getting back out into, you know, you know, being a culture vulture again, which is one of the main reasons to live in, in a city like London. We're going to go to this event that like, oh, yeah, so easy to go to because I'm in London. And it was, it was pancake flat. <laughs> it was really disappointing. I walked, really? Out, walked out of it afterwards like, what, what was that? And that was just, and um I'm talking to my partner afterwards. I mean, charitably, we decided that the the best explanation is that because of COVID restrictions, they just couldn't do much creative stuff with a, a design festival. But like a global design festival, I expect to be blown away and 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 walk out of there thinking like, whoa, right. I'm thinking totally differently now about, you know, X, Y, Z and, you know, and 23 other letters in the alphabet. And instead it was like, hmm. So, you know, hits and misses. That's also part of the life of a, of a culture vulture, I guess. I was just in the car a minute ago, and I was listening to public radio, and I heard a report that they're that actually they are trying to kind of keep restrictions in London because this new variant that's apparently more transmissible, and people are, are, are they were saying, pressuring Boris Johnson not to loosen restrictions. Well, I mean, we'll see how this goes. The It is... So I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, but at the at the outset of the pandemic, talking to one of my global public health friends, and he said, you know, like, take a good look around, Chris. Nothing that you are about to see is actually driven by public health considerations, <laughs> which is just, as an insider saying that, like, I know how this stuff goes. So much of this is going to be politics and business and and the decisions around you know when to when to close when to reopen are are, are complex uh, decisions for for governments to take and they're, and they're highly politicized decisions and 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 so you know who knows i guess is my summary there what uh, what they're going to do in in this country about it but anyway for the moment we we could go we could go and have um what i was hoping would be you know i like i love having my mind blown I mean, how how else do we see new things, but to be shown them? <laughs> I, I did I did take away a couple of interesting things. One is that in in uh, July 2021, um, across Europe, they're going to be they're going to ban uh, like single use plastic utensils, so things like plastic forks, for example. And so they had a room which was basically imagine that you were in a museum of the future. There's going to be a display of like how people used to eat with these plastic utensils. So like all of these plastic utensils under glass in display cases. And it's kind of dumb, but it was also kind of deep in a sense that our relationship with this object is about to change. It's about to be 
become a historical artifact, something that used to be a part of our lives and is no longer. And so here's an opportunity to to experience the new relationship with this everyday artifact. So, so we that was kind of cool. Have, will you have to have like metal? You t- I mean, what it, what's going to replace? Or you know, or those like kind of like um, like wooden forks or anyway, it's okay. So you know, so go, you go could figure it out, society. You can't use these anymore. Right. You, so you could have disposable stuff, but it can't be plastic. It can't be plastic. Yeah. That will never happen in the United States. Let me just tell you right now. That's just... Here, here's here's another one that I learned that was quite interesting. So, so one of the rooms had... It was a design for kind of like a collar, like 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 a little... I'm not going to explain this very well, but kind of like a, a little collar that could fit onto an automobile tire, like almost like a brake pad, but around the outside of the tire that I guess would fit up in the in the wheel well. And what it does is it collects micro plastic particles that are burning off of the tire while it is driving. Wow. And I didn't realize that um, micro plastic, basically like um, um, little bits and pieces flying off of tires is, is the second largest source of microplastics in the environment. Wow. Yeah, I had I had no idea. That's interesting. But you know, when we think about uh like vehicle emissions, we think about, you know, what comes out of the tailpipe. And as we move to, you know, autonomous electric vehicles, that's going to become less of a problem. But the but the 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 plastic rubber pollution from the the wear on tires is actually probably going to increase, uh especially if we move to this world where you have these autonomous you know, vehicles that are that are just moving twenty four seven on the road. So this was their solution for a problem that I didn't even know existed, but apparently is a really big problem. So, so this sounds yeah. better than your initial. <laughs> You're right; it does. Sound, yeah, it does sound. Trust me, not, there were parts of it that were really dumb. <laughs> all right, I will take your word for it. So today we're going to talk about money. We got to talk about money, right? Which we've never done. The thing, you know, there's so there's so much that we have to talk about is part of the problem. Um, and I guess another part of it is that, you know, neither one of us are economists. And so it does sort of feel sometimes that, well, is that really, is that our... Never stopped us before. Well, okay, you're right. Yeah. So that was kind of the decision. And then the, I think what, you know, the the event that really made it timely to say, you know what, we, we got to stop everything. We got to talk about money. And, and what does money even mean now was um, the, uh, the latest budget that... Um, over there on your side of the pond, the Biden administration dropped, which was how big was that budget that they proposed? It's a little over $6 trillion. I mean, what does a number like that even mean? Um, that's that's also, that's that's like $2 trillion more. And I don't know if this is in today's dollars or whatever, but like $4 trillion of government spending um, got us out of the depression. You know, like basically the World War II spending. Um, so we're doing this in one year. I mean, this is, this is, it's, it's, this is a big... Um, Budget. But, you know, it's it's funny because I didn't realize I, I did so a little research a couple years ago. We had like a four trillion dollar budget or 2019, I think, maybe. or, or was, So, I mean, this these are these things are just growing and growing. And so I don't I don't think six trillion dollars is going to be the record by any by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But, you know, like so record breaking budgets. Um, you know, cryptocurrency, there was just new, um, I think it was just today or, or yesterday as we're recording this, uh, an agreement reached around G7 countries to establish a global minimum corporate tax of 15%. Uh, you've got all sorts of like weird stock market behaviors right, right now with like meme stocks. 
it feels like now is the time to uh, take a step back and and really explore like what is this thing money which you know is is both so important and at the same time seems so imaginary that it it, it's kind of getting hard to get a hold on like, wait, what is this thing and how important is this and how should I behave and what should I value? It, it felt like now is a good time for us to try to start to unpack these things. So with that as a, as, as a segue, as a segue, it's funny because we were unpack talking other, away. We were talking the other day and I was, I think I was remarking that it, it'd be interesting to put on a spectrum monopoly money on one end, right? Like this is the, let's say it's a, it's a, it's, it's on a, a linear spectrum, right? And on the left side of the spectrum is the thing that's like seems most least valuable or most imaginary. You've got monopoly money, right? And on the far end, um, the other end of the spectrum, you've got say the U.S. dollar or the yen or something, right? Or so or the pound or something. And then in the middle is like cryptocurrency. And I think people look at cryptocurrency as this, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You know, investing in Bitcoin. But it's but the only reason that Bitcoin is not fully on the on the on the right end of the spectrum is because enough people haven't decided it should be there. <laughs> right. Like, and so it's it's just and a lot of people are banking. I mean I think the, the crypto kind of move is just banking, well, we're with the trend is going this way, right? It's gonna give us more autonomy. It's gonna it's gonna kind of unmoor currency from governments and things. And it's just fascinating that these arbitrary like people looking at people in that are that are that are investing in Bitcoin like they're investing in monopoly money or something. Well, no, nah, I mean the, the, these people are just making a futuristic bet, right? Right. A bet that a bet that other people will continue to see it as valuable, even if some people don't. And I, I, I can't remember you know who who I was reading just sort of history of money and stuff, but made what I thought was a brilliant point. All money is intrinsically worthless. It has no inherent value. And, and so just as you say, like in that respect, monopoly money and the US dollar is the same. Intrinsically, it's worthless. It's people's willingness to accept it as a medium for exchange that that gives it any value at all. And I, I was thinking a bit, so we'll have to talk um, a bit off and on about... Uh, my friend Doug, uh, what's Doug's last name? Rushkoff? Rushkoff? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Doug, let me know. Rushkoff. Um, he wrote a book called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. Um, really brilliant critic of sort of media and society. And in in one of his previous books, he did some research of kind of like the the medieval, the I guess the origins of sort of paper money in 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 uh, in medieval Europe, at least for sort of the European experience. And talking about how you really you roll back to medieval Europe, um, like most people had no need for money at all, right? I'm a peasant. You're my landlord. Um, I work the land, and in exchange for that, you know, I get my livelihood taken care of. I get shelter here. I can keep some of the grain, but I didn't need any money. Um, the The exchange relationship that kept me alive was my labor for you know your your patronage. Basically, and in that society, the only people who really who had money were the were the aristocrats who sometimes had to kind of like move wealth between regions and and they had like gold and and silver coins for that, where you didn't have to trust so badly that it was you know going to be accepted because there was a there was a market for the precious metal um you know above whatever anybody else said, and in that time, you know you had a lot of um you know, local markets where people had 
local currencies. So, so rather than, you know, rather than something issued by, you know, kind of like the, the U.S. Federal Reserve or, or, or something like that, you, you had the baker at, at, the, local, at the local daily market. And, and the baker, you know, always sold 100 loaves of bread every day at market day. It was well understood that there was a demand for, for bread. So the baker could, at the beginning of market day, he could just basically write receipts, uh, 100 receipts on 100 pieces of paper, redeemable for a loaf of bread at my stall. And at the start of the day, he could trade those receipts for the things that he needed, flour, eggs, you know, maybe he wanted a new pair of shoes. So, so he was just printing his own money and people accepted it because they knew that they were going to need to buy bread later that day. And so in a sense, like the, the most, the people who were there at market selling the daily essentials, they created a money supply just to help um, exchanges happen in the marketplace because no one had gold or silver and it, and it kind of worked. And then, you know, where, where these central currencies came about was when, you know, some, some princes and courts said like, Hey, we got to get in on this game. If, if we outlaw all local forms of currency and we create a central currency that, that everyone has to use, then in order to do business in the market, that baker, he needs to borrow money from us. So he can't write his own money. He's got to borrow it from us, the central bank. It will give it to him, but we're going to charge him interest. And that's how we're going to make money by being the the controller of the of the central money supply. So so Doug wrote this really interesting book where he kind of looked at the at the economic incentive that led, you know, sort of, you know, France, England, whatever, to create central currencies and abolish local currencies because when you're the only one with a medium of exchange everybody needs it and they got a board from you and you can charge them interest and that's how how you get rich so so i i, I think it's really it, it is really helpful to kind of know the history of the money that we use all the time now um and, and knowing that history, actually, what, what cryptocurrencies are trying to do at a kind of, you know, theory level, like the people who are who are thinking of cryptocurrency as as a way to um, democratize the power to create the medium in which exchange happens and kind of take that power back from the states and, and, and re reinvent the local currencies that used to exist in medieval marketplaces for market exchange to happen um, without the role of a central bank that charges interest for supplying that medium of exchange to people who need it. I think that history is really, uh, when, you, when you know that history, you can appreciate at a kind of uh, theory level what, what cryptocurrency, what Satoshi was about when, when he invented the, the algorithms for, for Bitcoin. But it's also interesting how that's actually not at all what the what the um, what the behavior and the excitement um, around these cryptocurrencies is about today. No one is thinking about it would be great if we could um, democratize the creation of mediums of exchange. Uh, it's it's just another gold rush, and everybody's rushing into the gold because you know it's 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 difficult to. 
uh, acquire assets if you don't have any. And there are many people who you know have basically taken uh, lint from their pocket and turned it into gold if they sort of you know got onto the cryptocurrency bandwagon at the right time. And now you've got so many other people who just want to repeat that um, that magic trick that I sort of feel like no matter how um, precipitously the price of these cryptocurrencies dip, there's going to be enough people who remember that some people got rich doing this, that they're going to bid up the price again. So lots of threads, and we haven't even begun to scratch the topic yet, but those are some of my initial thoughts. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I mean, part of like what made me want to talk about this with you is I, when Biden's budget came out, um, and it was this biggest budget we ever had, and by, big by a significant amount, I mean, a jump that was pretty significant. It, you know, like I started reading um, about modern monetary theory. And I'd never read about this stuff before. And there are all these economists that basically say, well, if you meet three standards, you should deficit spend. And the standards are, A, you, you, have, you print your own currency. The second is that you have a floating, not a fixed exchange rate, right? So your, your currency um, is in the marketplace, I guess. Like you don't have this fixed exchange rate. Um, and you're not on a gold standard or something, right? Like, and the third is um, that you pay your debts in your own currency, Right. So, so you, so China will take dollars in payment for the United States debts. Right. And and that kind of thing. And basically there, these economic theorists argue that if you meet those standards and there's a lot of countries in Western Europe that wouldn't meet those standards. Right. I mean, um, but if you meet those standards, you can deficit spend as much as you want unless it inflates, it causes inflation and kills the currency. So basically the only reason, the only thing you have to worry about is inflation. You don't have to worry about paying your bills, paying the debt, paying down. And in fact, in this kind of flips things on its head where like it used to be virtuous to have a surplus, right? You were looked at like, you know, you know, like when in the Clinton era, right? When we had, we had budget surpluses that was looked at as very virtuous for, for the modern monetary economic theorists that they're saying, basically you're not doing your job. You're not, you're not putting enough money in the economy to keep, to get to full employment and to juice um, economic growth. And so basically you shouldn't be proud of surplus budget surpluses. If you're getting budget surpluses, you're doing something wrong. And so that's something that's so, like, in, in American politics, right, uh, both parties generally have agreed that deficits aren't good things, right? Now, both parties have done deficit spending and, and argue for, for doing it um, for different reasons. But both parties, when they balance budgets, are very proud. Oh, look, we didn't deficit spend. Like, we, and, and that's looked at as an achievement. And for these people, the modern monetary theorists are like, no, you shouldn't be bragging about a surplus. The, the, if the government has a, is running a surplus, it's actually not um, being activist enough in, in, in economic activity, which is just, just, just turns so much th- intuitive thinking about money on its head. There's a, let, let's, let's take a moment on that. You know, how, 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 how you know, how intuition can, um, can either fit or, or jar with the, the present context. Uh, there's this great quote from Marcel Proust um, that I found. Do you say Proust or do you say Proust? Oh, uh, I would, over here we'd say Proust. Okay, Proust uh, that I found while I was reading uh, just you know, some of my old economics books. But he said, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes, which I think is just a, a beautiful phrase. And, you know, this, this notion of, you know, is, is balancing the budget sort of like being good, serious political leadership or foolhardy, um, 
you know, one thing that's changed since the 1990s when, you know, balancing the budget was, you know, that's all that, you know, what Bill Clinton was trying to do um, and what, you know, north of your border in Canada, that was the big agenda. Like the debt is running away with us. We have to balance the budget. We have to get into surplus. Um, in, money was expensive. Interest rates were high. And so, you know, when you were running a deficit, you had to borrow more money. The debt was growing. You had to pay more in interest every year. It was crowding out these other things you wanted to spend money on. Fast forward to today, we still have the intuition, as you say, that um, balancing the books, just like in a household, you know, yada, 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 is is good management. But but the context has changed. And, and this is, I mean, this is a good example of, you know, a good example that sort of applies to the whole world that our intuitions are only as good as, or our intuitions are only as relevant as the context in which they formed has not changed. That's not very artful. Figure out the better form of that. We should write that on a wall because there's some, (laughs) (laughs) right? No, yeah, yeah, no, that's, and and what these, um, the modern monetary theorists are saying is, look, it's just, just what you've said. They're like, of course, you want to balance budgets in a household and running a surplus in a household is great. But a government that meets their, their, those three um, aforementioned criteria is not a household. Right. And so, so it's, it's trying to think like, it's basically, sometimes you have to do counterintuitive thinking, right. To get in touch with reality. And I, I think that sometimes it's, it's clear. It, it helps. It helps to revise your own intuition when you can kind of look at other people who are in different situations so, you know, right now, if you're the U.S. government, I think you can borrow, you know, you can borrow money for basically like 0% interest rates, more or less, right? Basically, there's the interest rate is, is near zero. If you're South Africa, I, I looked it up in the Financial Times today. So if you're South Africa and, and the part of your debt, of your national debt that's coming due this year that you need to roll over, like I got to borrow money from Scott to pay off Mary who needs her money this year. If you're South Africa, you're paying about, 10 to 12 percent on that new borrowing if you're ghana you're paying you know 15 percent on that new borrowing so yeah if if you know if i'm south africa and i want to borrow a hundred dollars from scott um and i say okay great yeah i need this money and and you say you just you just got to know you got to give me 110 dollars um next year or 121 dollars the year after that and you start to think about okay well that's you know i should i borrow that money Am I going to be able to create enough new money with it to pay you back and and get ahead? But if I'm if I'm the U.S. right now and we say we want to borrow a hundred dollars and you know a year from now how much do I have to pay back a hundred dollars you know or ten years from now how much do I need to pay back it's still just a hundred dollars or like a hundred dollars and like two cents or something like that yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. and you start to think I'm I'm sure that in ten years I can figure out how to turn that hundred dollars into into more than a hundred dollars and pay you back that, that original money. And, and, and I get to keep, I get to keep the rest. I mean, any one of us, I think would choose that. So I'll borrow a million dollars and in 10 years, pay you back a million dollars. And I'm pretty sure I can figure out what to do with it. So if you're South Africa paying, you know, 10, 12% on new debt, maybe you think about it, but if you're the United States and it's basically, you know, zero, 1%, then then you start to ask yourself, you know, what could we do with this money? We could build like, you know, and and if the world wants to give it to us, like how much money should we take for this deal? Like, let's just take as much as we can, because there's a lot of things that we could do. I mean, apparently, you know, China or Russia has managed to figure out how to build 
these UFOs that do these things in the air. That we, you know, maybe we could build some of those. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things you can start imagining doing doing with uh, with the money. So I, I can I can yeah, it's 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 interesting how you know I guess this is one part of the question. You know, what does money mean? Is what does it mean if you're a government? Yeah, and I think you know, and and I loved your comment earlier about intuition and stuff because when you when you just hear like I mean the effect is an American when you hear six trillion dollars right like it just sounds so emotional like oh my god we're spending six, and then but again this is like these new economic theorists would argue, well, that's, you know, really taxation isn't to pay bills. Taxation is just to keep the economy, to keep inflation down. And so basically you take taxes, serve the function of taking money out of the economy, right? So it's, you know, so it's, 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 it, you're trying to have this really, you know, I always say like leadership is sort of, um, it's a big like um, balance between being a thermometer and a thermostat, right? Sometimes leadership is taking the temperature and sometimes it's setting the temperature, right? Like, and so that's sort of what, you know, like the modern monetary theorists are saying, like, sometimes the guy, you know, it, it's this balance between thermostat and thermometer, right? And, 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 and part of taxation's function is being a thermostat, right? Like, so that we don't juice the economy too much. And it's just very interesting because that's just so different than the way we think about taxes. Because like you were saying earlier, you're balancing budgets. And of course, you're, you've got you've to have a taxation policy that brings in X number of dollars because here's our budget and all this stuff. And so what if you just have to completely rethink basic concepts like debt, deficits, taxation, and all this to get a handle on what money really does and what it is in, in, in late modernity. And it's just, um, it, and I've just found it. I've, I've only been really thinking seriously about this for like maybe six weeks or so. Like I've not really considered this. And then you and I have been talking about it and I find I'm having to, it's just causing me to, to do a lot of intellectual work. And I think it's not because the concepts are particularly difficult, but I'm having having to at least experiment with untraining my mind or retraining my mind to say, okay, no, 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 no. When I think about words like debts and deficits and taxation, I need to really rethink or at least be open to rethinking how these things function if this theory is right, right? And that's just really challenging to do. Where do you want to take um, – so I've got uh, two two paths diverged in a wood. There is, there is this – there is so much. Do you know what's great about that poem? No, what? That basically that poem is complete uh, bullshit in the sense of, well, it's not bullshit. It's everybody, like, it's always read at college graduations and stuff as if, oh, do the road not taken. But but if you read the poem carefully, Robert Frost is saying, well, I didn't take the road not taken. But years later, I'm going to be telling this story and saying, I took the road not taken. <laughs> but he, he puts it in the poem, the text of the poem. That basically he's recollecting and bullshitting and saying, ah, this is, oh, I took the road not taken. But the idea is it's pretty clear in the poem that the narrator is not, did not take the road not taken. Or he just kind of did something conventional. And now he's saying he took the road not taken. So what you're saying is that none of the people who read that poem aloud have read the poem. Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 no, the, yeah. It's, it's a complete, like it's a, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's it's just one of the most interesting things because and Frost does it so well that you can miss it. So I feel like, and I'm totally happy to go either or both these ways with you, but but also thinking about our listeners and trying to map out where this conversation might go. There is there is so much territory to explore around you know how do we think about these 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 
almost like like state level finance questions our relationship with money in the state debt and deficit and taxation and 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 what's all going on there i feel like there is also so much to explore around you know what does money mean to us as 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 persons living in a society where where there are these kind of this social technology which is kind of like a universal utility converter and 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 which is itself going through so much change as as new ways of exchanging with one another are being explored and tested. So so where where do you want to take this this conversation next? Do you want to do you want to veer toward the personal? Do you want to go deeper into into kind of um the the state level? What no, I think I'd like to talk more about value because I think this is really interesting. You know, I just think even our relationship to cash, right? So when I was growing up, cash was like, if I got like $10 in a birthday card, um, a $10 bill was like so valuable. Hmm. Right? Like, I mean, just looked I, like having cash in your pocket hmm. felt so powerful. I mean, like, you know, you could go down to 7-Eleven and buy a pretzel and play video games and all this thing. Like, you know, these, and now cash, I, I am so indifferent to cash. Like I have um, in my backpack here, I bet you there's $30 in cash or something in, in different, you know, mixed bills. And I don't even think about it. Like I, like I'm so indifferent to cash and I almost, you know, because everything is so electronic, right. And, and, and money becomes numbers in a ledger, right. In a digital ledger, the cash almost seems passe. Like, so, so having a bunch of cash in my pocket does not feel like it used to because I can lose it or I can, you know, like, I mean, what if it pops out of my pocket or so? It's just interesting how something as basic as a billfold can really change. Like where, where it doesn't feel like it, 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 it used to feel like it used to be like, man, if you had a roll of bills in your pocket, man, well, you're ready for Friday night. <laughs> no, like, no, I've got, I've got like, um, I've got an iPhone. I have a wallet case, right? So, so I totally, I don't carry a wallet anymore. So I don't even want cash in my pocket because I have in my iPhone wallet case, I have like my driver's license. I have a, like, um, two, a couple credit cards, like, um, my vaccination little card or whatever. I have a, and I like cash almost feels like an encumbrance to me these days. There, there's also, so there's, we're really, you're really in, in, this is one of the interesting properties of money. You're really talking about two things there. You know, one is the, the physical instrument, which has become digitized. So we don't need the physical analog piece of paper anymore. Um, you have digital cash. And, and then there is the, the, the purchasing power. Which you know, it, in what you've described, you know, ha- doesn't necessarily change. I still appreciate the purchasing power, but it's the it's the physical medium that has become kind of kind of cumbersome. When you think of, so yeah, like wow, ten bucks, dude, you were like rich kid. <laughs> and, and but when I think, think of it like as a little think about an app like mm-hmm. Venmo, right? Like, let's say you and I um, went to a pub for dinner with like two friends or, or to, for happy hour or something, right? Well, you know. Um, we get the bill and we're splitting it four ways. Or, or let's say I had the you know, three drinks, you had two, you got the, and, and you, you know, you do all this calculus, you know, where, okay, what is Chris? Oh, he got the bangers and mash or he got chicken wings and da, da, da. And then you get all this cash out and then you, Oh, I got to go to the ATM. I don't have cash. Now we have Venmo and I've done this with people like, Oh, uh, how much was your share of the bill? Oh, it was 1250. So I can just get on my 
phone and send you 1250 in an instant, right? Like I, I don't even have to walk over to the ATM, right? It's just so efficient. And like it, 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 but you're right that this thing, it's almost like we're talking about platonic forms or something like, you know, where, where, um, you know, Plato thinks, you know, when, when you, when you look at, rea- at things in physical reality, they really symbolize these things, these eternal realm of the forms, these non material kind of realities. And it's almost th- that way with money, right? Like where money is this almost like platonic form, right? It exists in this non-physical sphere of digits and, and ethereal reality. But then we choose what, how we symbolize it. And so, okay, now it's it's moving away from paper kind of currency to digital ledgers. And so, so but we're still not, we're still talking about something that seems distinct from the ledger or the, or the cash. <sighs> You know, I think if if I go back to, you know, that the, your childhood self who, you know, gets so excited when there is that $10 bill in a card, I I think, you know, if, if, uh, if Friedrich Hayek were standing next to you in that moment, he would, he would point at you, the, this child with delight on his face and say, this is what I mean when I say that money is one of the greatest instruments of freedom ever invented. Because in 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 this money, this 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 child Scott can exchange that ten dollars for this infinite variety of wants that that he might possess. And and before the invention of money, you 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 wouldn't have that right you have you have certain things of value like you know i can do some labor i'm a kid um i can move these things for you what can i get for it well what do you have you know i've got apples okay so i can do this labor and i can get these apples but it was it was always this kind of you know barter between what i have on me and what you have on me and then you know the intervention of of this utility converter that can convert um you know, my wants and needs into your wants and needs uh, is really a kind of a kind of magic that enables much more complex um, exchanges to, to happen. And as a kid getting that $10 bill, you're kind of you're just intuitively grasping all of that. Like, oh, I can do so many things. I don't even know what I want to do with this yet, but I can do it now because I have I have this thing. And I'd like to actually, you know, like, I wonder if that relationship with money is, is changing at all or, or, or might change at all now, because, you know, like classically, there has always been, um, an argument that, that this, this magical device called money that Hayek says, like, this is the greatest, uh, tool for freedom ever invented also has this kind of dark consequence that, I no longer need to understand what Scott's wants and needs are. Um, all, all, all we need to do is figure out a price. And if we agree, then then whoever you are, whatever's going on in your life doesn't matter to me. I could get the exchange done. Um, I, I forget. Uh, I got I to gotta look, look it up in the book. I think it might have been Charles Eisenstein uh, who wrote this book, Sacred Economics. And and uh, I'll, I'll check the quote later. We can put it in the show notes. But uh, who wrote, the, the first conclusion I reached is that money makes us exquisitely inept at real human relationship. And, you know, we were just talking uh, before we started recording about, you know, you're planning to spend some time in New York and, and staying with friends. Um, and that's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a different 
currency, a value that's very different from, you know, I'm staying at a hotel and there's a money transaction, why they're letting me into the house. It's like, no, I've done so many things for these people. They've done so many things for me. We, we, we kind of, we have a human relationship that enables things of value to exchange between us with, without the medium of money at all. And, and so I think that, you know, at a personal level, there has always been this kind of tension with, with the role of money. It both, it, it frees us and it kind of allows us to, to stay blind to who other people are and, and the other forms of, of exchange that it is possible to build up. Absolutely. absolutely. And so it's interesting. So we were, you know, I want to say two things, like two possible, two of my favorite sort of TV shows and movies. So you have Star Trek on the one end, which is generally kind of evolutionary in its, in its imaginative um, conception of humanity, right? Like things get better and better. Um, and there's all this kind of international cooperation, which leads us into space. And then, and the struggle is to sort of, you know, cross boundaries and it with other species and exploration and there's no money. And there's this great scene in Star Trek four where um, Kirk is on a date. He goes back to the 1980s where he's on a date and they, the bill comes and this woman really thinks he's crazy. She doesn't think he's really from the 21st century. And she goes, I love well, how I you always bring they... Star Trek into this stuff. Oh yeah. And she goes, <laughs> well, I suppose they don't use money in the 24th century. And Kirk goes, well, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so you're buying just FYI. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but then also I think about like the walking dead and like a post-apocalyptic like scenario. And there's this great episode of the walking dead where this, this Episcopal priest character is walking through Negan's compound, which Negan runs this kind of community called the saviors, which they're, they're viewed as the enemy of the kind of protagonists in the show. And yet you look at this really functional, the priest challenges where you have people working in the economy and this, or in, in this factory. And then you have people that are the, are the soldiers and this, and they're not all treated fairly. And Negan goes, it's an economy. They're winners and losers. And they work for points and they develop a point system. And so Negan has constructed an economy from chaos, but there's no money. <laughs> like, you know, it's, and there's this one great scene from the walk. I think it's from the walking dead where they find a, um, a crashed kind of, kind of security, you know, the kind of um, security van you would, you, you would carry deposits in from bank to bank. And they're like, just throwing this money around saying, remember when this meant something? <laughs> <laughs> and it's only a couple of years after it did mean something, right? And then this thing just means absolutely nothing. And so that's so that so it's just interesting because there's a post-apocalyptic um kind of view of it. And there's the science fiction futurist view. One is a little more dark and another is a little more hopeful, but neither of them have a place for money. It it's interesting too, just you know, on the on the Negan example in a post-apocalyptic future where there's there is an economy of exchange where, uh, you know, like, yeah, instead of using cur like, you know, central currency, they've got it. They've kind of got another currency going. They've taken something else and said that's a unit of exchange. Um, and, and actually, there are there are many interesting experiments of this happening in in the world today. I mean, one of the more famous ones is uh, I forget the I forget the term for it. In, in Japan, but they have these carrying currencies where, where basically the unit of exchange is an hour of your time. So if you, um, and, and I think it was after the financial crisis in Japan, they, 
the, the some people started started these carrying currencies up and they kind of took off and they're they're still in existence today but the idea that like let's say if you if you do an hour of caring for an elderly person you know doing their groceries or something like that then that that hour of care gets banked in a kind of favor bank and um in the future you can get you know somebody who is willing to who's who is in that economy they will they will do an hour of caring for you in exchange. So as part of saving up for your retirement today, while you're able, you can do a lot of help for the elderly and bank up um, uh, a kind of savings of people taking care of you so that when you're elderly and you need other help, you've got that. So you've turned, you've basically, what you've done is some magical thing where you've taken your, your time in the present and you've converted it into someone else's time in in the future and and it functions as long as people are 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 willing to um continue to participate in that economy and kind of you know on a, on an on an honorable basis um both like accrue and and discharge what they've committed to do uh in that economy i i will just say briefly it may be interesting at some point to talk a bit about about china because i it's also i, I think it's important to not um romanticize um, barter economies. I mean, there are a lot of benefits to being able to exchange with a neutral medium where I don't need to get into a complicated personal relationship with you. So I think as, you know, someone who studied sort of modern Chinese history, so you think in like in, in red communist China where like, like there was no money, you didn't have money. You, you had a work unit, the state supplied everything for you. And so in that social context where you where everything was rationed there was a whole shadow economy of uh basically gifts and favors um and you know and 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 banquets that you invited people to um that that that's called guanxi Uh, and so the way you got by was you know you had people that owed you favors um, you know, I, we've run out of our grain allotment, but somebody can get it for me and they're going to give it f- for me because, you know, I'm a dentist and I helped them when they had that toothache and like the, you know, all of, there's a kind of a complex ledger of, of favors given and favors owed that it kind of allows you to obtain the things that you can't get in, in, in the formal economy. And as, as China liberalized, you know, it, it definitely changed people's social relationships that they didn't need to maintain those things. And, and some was lost, but some was gained because there's a lot of exploitation, right? There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of differing power relationships, um, you know, various sort of gender dynamics in place. And the fact that you could just say, no, 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 like, look, let's just have money solve these questions for us. Um, in some ways, disentangled people who didn't want to be entangled from one another. Yeah, it's, it's money plays this rich and interesting role. It's not at all, you know, I, I think there's kind of a tendency to either deify it or demonize it. And and the reality is, is all of those things. Yeah. And I think it testifies to, I mean, the important thing, I think money, well, at least for the, for our conversation, the thing that makes it important and interesting to me is it, it bears witness to the human capacity for an imaginative creativity where people can come up with ways 
Mm. of revaluing things, right? And creating economies and creating, and you know, and this isn't working and what could we do? And I think very often, I mean, there's a guy named Paul Tripp um, who's, uh, he's a kind of religious psychologist in America. And I read one of his books once and he said, people in crisis generally don't need information. They need imagination, right? They don't need more data. They need to be able to see the landscape differently. I like that. Yeah. And I think that, and this has been so much of your work. I mean, you know, as a writer and speaker and political scientist, I mean, you push people to questions and imagination over information and just data mining and stuff. And I think that's the question. And so this is what's interesting because as you and I are talking about this, it, it, as we're talking about money and just thinking about what is it, it, it has exposed a lot of creative thinking in the both of us. Like, wow, this is really interesting. And it makes us think about the ways humans do exchanges, right? And relate to each other and that sort of thing. And I think that's the power. Like it's something like asking a question about what is money is really asking a question about what do humans value and how does value translate into the construction of our lives together? There, so you've just summarized the 20th century. <laughs> you know, if thank you, you, everybody. Thank you. I'm here till Thursday. <laughs> but if you think of, um, so the name I have in my mind at the moment is Carl Poliani, you know, who wrote the, I think the structure of scientific revolutions. Oh, he, yeah. he was the guy who coined the phrase paradigm shift. He's amazing. Yeah, like amazing, amazing. Convert um, to Christianity from um, Judaism. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, love yeah. that you know that. I didn't. Yeah, know. no, uh, Polanyi is a, one of. My, yeah, I love Polanyi. Yeah, he's amazing. So he wrote a book in the '40s called "The Great Transformation," and and basically the question he was asking that book was, you know, the 19th century from you know, admittedly from sort of uh, a quite European perspective on the world, uh, a Western European perspective. The 19th century was quite, was relatively stable. Here we are in the middle of the 20th century. We've already had two world wars. Why? And, and, and so he described what he called a double movement. And the first movement was this sort of industrialization, the decoupling of economy and society and sort of turning society into, into the service of the economic machine. And then a counter movement, which was, oh my God, this is destroying the, 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 like the nation fascism, or, oh my God, you know, we need to protect the workers, communism. And, and, and that was, you know, his history of, of the 20th century. I think that, so our relationship to money, I, I don't have the the horsepower to really, you know, I I haven't thought about this, and and I think it's going to take much greater minds than me to work work on this. But I think that one of the one of the roots of the kind of conflicts we have around money in the world today is that when we talk about investment, we're talking about financial capital. But but when you think in a more abstract sense, you know, creating value, a, a productive economy, you know, there's the, the classic equation is um, like capital plus labor plus land equals output, you know, or at least capital and labor. So there's a money, there's like a capital investment, financial investment. There's also a labor investment. And one of the challenges in the world today and why you see, you know, inequality becoming more and more extreme is that the capital investment sort of, you know, gains that shareholder wealth. But the labor investment um you know seems that it, it well doesn't participate in that kind of wealth creation um and in some cases you know doesn't even manage to escape poverty while 
um, while so much value is being created. So, so, so I think there's something really there that we have, we have reduced the notion of investment, what counts as investment to money. And I think, I think that was sort of like a, we weren't watching and we slipped into that because, you know, the, so the value of money, the, the, the magic of it that Hayek talked about is that now uh, we have the means to translate any one person's wants and needs into anyone else's wants and needs. But along the way, we, we move from a society where, you know, different people want different things. And we got to sort that out to one where all people want the same thing, which is money. <laughs> and, and, and the kind of the centrality of money has, has caused us to lose sight of, of the broader economic equation of how value is created, that it's the coming together of yeah, financial capital, human capital, natural capital to produce stuff of value to society. And it seems to me that that's, that's one way to kind of step back and explain a lot of what is going on in the world in terms of the tensions we see. Whether it's so it's, interesting, even the way you say that, natural capital, right? Like we're, we're in this sort of framework that mo- where a certain kind of monetary system defines how we look at like, like, you know. Oh, you're totally right. Yeah. In a different, like we were yeah. oh, capital, we got natural capital. This, yeah. And we got to put it all I, into the economic machine, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And I, and I'm not critiquing you. I do the same thing. It's just interesting that you, you have to like almost unplug from the matrix a little Otherwise, bit. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense to people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. No, I know. It's just interesting. I'm just. I was like, oh yeah, Chris is making sense. Wow, but the way he's talking is like we, we've it's it's in uh, not just economic terms and, and money driven economic terms, but a certain kind of economic symbol structure. I I think the other thing too is wow, totally. And and maybe another way to put another way to phrase the same thing is you know because because money is this universal converter for exchange, and because it makes it possible to live in a world where everybody wants the same thing, money. Because then we can turn it to whatever it is we particularly want. It's kind of it's it's made it difficult to to have a nuanced world. So let, let me let me say I'm going to borrow Eisenstein's words again because uh, I thought he he put this idea pretty well. He said money money's impersonality fosters cooperation over vast social distances. It helps to coordinate the labor of millions of people who are mostly strangers to each other. And that's great. But do we want our relationships with the people in our own neighborhoods to be impersonal too? And I think that like what I think is is expressed in there really well is that it is this fabulous medium of exchange that we we use it everywhere, including in in local contexts where we maybe could rely on other forms. And, And you almost feel like during the during the pandemic, a lot of kind of at a local level, we 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 rediscovered the invisible people in our world who who were, were right there engaged in money relationships with us and and because it was a money relationship we had no need to understand their individuality their wants and needs all we needed to understand is that they were in a money relationship and that they were you know freely participating in it that was all we needed to know and suddenly this other layer of reality erupted into our lives which is they are also biological beings and and therefore a part of our health that our health is in some ways a public good not something we can determine for ourselves. So there's this whole other relationship that we've completely simplified away because money enables us to do that. And I wonder if 
you know, if 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 that's not going to be one of the big movements in in kind of the the evolution of society in in the 21st century is 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 to really interrogate the the role of money and to maybe figure out how to add more nuance. It's it's great for situations where it's useful and helpful to have an impersonal medium of exchange, but not every exchange is best served in that impersonal way. Well, yeah, and, and like Neil Postman's book, um, Technopoly, which is, I mean, it's a good book. I mean, Postman's a crank, but but he talks <laughs> he talks about like what happens when um, in a technopoly. He's like, basically what happens is you switch from humans creating tools to serve the culture to the tools shaping the culture. So humans are no longer like making tools to, to, to serve their cultural matrix. The tools then take over the culture. And I think that is, you wow. know, that's, yeah. that's happened with technology. It's, and, and it's definitely happened with money where like, it's not what you've narrated very well is this story where money becomes this helpful tool for impersonal exchange and to kind of, um, to level a playing field in some ways and make things, um, more universal. And more, but what happens when this tool becomes, um, an animating principle. It gets a personality of its own and it kind of, right. it's act, it's acting as though it's, it's not a tool. So I have a, I have a, a very wealthy friend who, who likes to say money is the devil. <laughs> 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 and, and it's, and, and, and I like the, I like the sharpness of that, of that way of saying like, no, let's, let's personify this thing that isn't inanimate, but it, it is alive. Um, and and what he meant by that is not like not that it's not that it's evil, but and I think it's a quite astute observation that you know as human beings we have many appetites. We got a sexual appetite. You got like a um, like a, like an appetite for food. You know we 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 have these um, these these vices and these wants. But but most appetites. You can only have so much of them, and then actually you don't want it anymore. Like even sex, you can only have so much sex, and then you're just physically exhausted. Um, you know, great food, like oh, I want that bag of chips. But after the first or the second or the third, like you don't even, you don't actually you don't feel. Money is not like that. With money, there is no end. There is no there is no biological feedback restraining your appetite to some upper limit, and and so the appetite is endless. And, 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 and that's what he meant with money is the devil. And, and, and his belief is that really to constrain the devil, you got to, so you've got to decide for yourself, when is that appetite satisfied and kind of drive to consume that and then have no more appetite for it. And it's really, I thought it's really interesting that, yeah, that's true. It's, it's the only thing in our existence that we crave that we, we can never have enough of it. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, I have a personal philosophy. If Nietzsche and Augustine agree on anything, it has to be true. Um, and, but I think one, I would say some things about human desire that Nietzsche and Augustine both agree on, it goes back to Jesus when he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And so, right, like treasure, so money's not quite the oh, same say thing. Say that again, say that again. Yeah, it's the words of Jesus. I'm quoting Jesus here. Uh, the where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And so, what you value, so your treasure is what you value, right? And and um, and Jesus actually talks a lot about money because from this very thing, it's it's. I think Jesus is thinking it's a it's a psychoanalytic tool. I mean, of course, Jesus didn't know about psychoanalysis or anything, but like, but I'm putting kind of I'm retrofitting Jesus here. But like, it's this it's this great window into what you want. Like I always tell people, mm. like 
If I know what you think, I know a little bit about you. If I know what you want, I know almost everything about you, right? Like, because we're creatures of desire, right? And so the interesting thing about money is it's this almost x-ray or, or, or you know, kind of, um, it's this window into the human soul, right? Because it, like you're saying, it, it's this exchange rate that says, uh, this is what I want. And this is, and so it's a great diagnostic tool for what we value, which is ultimately, I think like human beings are meaning receivers and meaning makers, right? We want to receive and make meaning. And money is such a big part of that story because it's enabled us to sort of reify our, our desires. I mean, it's, it's a very, that's what's so powerful about it, I think. Right. And, and why you want more and more of it, because, you know, we're, we're, you know, you, you want to kind of keep desiring and making meaning and receiving meaning and stuff. And money enables you to do that in some, in some interesting ways. But the question is, could we have a different kind of economy right. that, that wouldn't be dependent on money where we could be meaning makers and meaning receivers? I think let, 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 let's get back to that in two minutes, but just to pick up this earlier point about, um, about our wants, because, you know, I, I think there is also a kind of a, a cultural level at which it's established how much we should want. And, and if, if, if our, our appetite to, um, to, to, to have affluence is endless or, or if culturally there's some kind of like, no, the objective here is, is something more modest than that for all of us. Where I'm going with this is, so I think of um, in, in ancient Chinese culture, so Confucius, Confucius had this concept called Xiao Kang and, and basically means moderately well off. And so Confucius, you know, the historical figure was basically a counselor to, to, to emperors. And so he was the one who kind of said like, like this is what you should be trying to do. And his advice to uh, to the imperial court is that your goal, what you're trying to, to achieve, is a society in which uh, the average person has has more than they need, but is less than affluent. That there's this kind of like it's kind of like this Aristotelian golden mean, and they were all kind of hanging out at the same time, right? So there must have been something in the in the zeitgeist in in sort of the sixth century BCE. But I think that's very interesting, and it seems to be. You know, you say it now, it sounds like, well, that's a very archaic idea that the idea that the, 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 the goal isn't for everyone to be affluent, that actually that would create an unbalanced society, a society that was kind of out of balance. What we want is that everyone's needs are meet, met, but, but that we're not, we're not a decadent society where everyone feels that, yeah, you should just meet every want that you can imagine having. And, and that that would be good. Like, no, that would bring us out of balance. And so, so I, I think there is this sort of social, cultural level that informs how, how run away the, um, the, 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 the power of money, the role of money becomes in society. And, and I do feel that, you know, sort of in the modernity we live in now, it, it has totally run away. The more, the better. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting. So, I mean, Max Weber is you know, one of the deans of, of modern sociology and, and not without controversy, but like, but if you, if you take seriously the Weber thesis, right. The Protestant work, work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. I mean, basically one of the things he argues is that there's never been a society that really kind of 
glamorized making money religiously or philosophically. So he thinks like you look at it at the history and, and this guy read everything you could read at the time in the 19th century, right? He's like, you can find societies where making money was neutral and you can find societies where making money was bad, right? It's not that they didn't have rich people. It's just no society made saints of rich people hmm. just for making money. And then he, he looks at Protestantism and he thinks there's this unique thing where you got the sense of calling Right. Which, which, you know, you have an individual calling and so you can break away from society. So you can do, you can break away from traditional family structures. Right. And then he thinks you've got what he calls this inner aesthetic, the inner seat where basically, um, or inner aesthetic, where basically if you're the elect of God, one of the signs is that you're making money. But also if you're the elect of God, you don't spend it ostentatiously. <laughs> so what do you do with it? You put it into capital. And so basically he thinks Protestantism with this doctrine of calling, which enables people to move people around, you know, like, like one of the examples he uses is, you know, there's this interesting, you know, the Christmas story, you know, Mary and Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem uh, to register for the census. Well, you know, now we would think that's absurd. Well, just because Chris is from Regina doesn't mean when there's a census, he has to go back. But the, the, this is so he thinks Protestantism helps to, to, to sort of, um, unsettle that, like, well, you're from this place, right? So now we've got mobile economic actors, right? And then when you get this thing where it's good to make money to show that you're blessed, but it's not good to spend it ostentatiously, he thinks basically Protestantism creates capitalism, um, creates the, 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 the... And it's funny, too, you look at Europe, and the validation of the Weber thesis, I think, is what are the powerhouse countries economically in Europe, <laughs> And what are the ones that struggle? And the Catholic right. nations generally are not as as powerful as the Protestant nations economically. That's because Catholics make, make saints of poor people. <laughs> and, and Protestants <laughs> valorize making money. Um. <laughs> there we go. A little quick introduction to Max Weber for our listeners that, you know, have not... Um, and, the, and the Weber... And there are tons of contemporary sociologists that still work off the Weber theory. And I think it's compelling. Um, you know, there's something about um, the spiritualization of money and making and, and making money that Protestantism did in the West that, gosh, if the West, I, I don't know without Protestantism, you could have had capitalism. And I guess you could say, like, to be kind of um, value neutral about it, you know, where, what is, maybe if I, if I think of like an evolutionary theorist and look at sort of human society as kind of like an organism or a species, what is the the evolutionary advantage of um, being strongly incentivized to make money is that it drives you to participate more in the economy. It drives you to figure out, okay, what what more things can I put into the economy? What 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 skills do I have? What labor? What ideas do I have? That incentive drives me to figure out new combinations, new activity to create value in order to capture some of it for myself. And that helps to helps the that that economy, which is sort of the sum total of all of the exchanges that are happening in it and and the combinations of capital and labor and land to make stuff that other people value, it it, it makes it more complex. Um and, and that complexity is you know, it is, is richer, it's more innovative, there's more stuff happening, there's more things you can get out of it. So there is, like, it, it. so it makes sense as, like, kind of, you know, if I'm, like, an evolutionary theorist trying to figure out 
you know, what does the money gene do? <laughs> you know, why has it thrived? Um, that it does encourage us, you know, not to be monks in a monastery, you know, sort of brewing beer or, or, or making honey, but, but kind of full participants in, in that messy milieu of the market square, causing new things to, to come forth. And so, so that to me seems like that's good, right? That there, there is, that is the sort of healthy generative role of, of making more and more variety of exchanges possible to happen. And then I think the, you know, the other side of it is, and what, what stressors does it create? You know, things like inequality of outcomes that, that create all sorts of stress, stressors upon, upon the community, upon the society, upon the system, or, or what about, well, you know, all the stuff that we're bringing into this economy, right? The, the natural resources, the, um, the, the, the time that, that, you know, could be better spent on our own health or on our relationships in our family or on the sustainability of the ecosystem. Like there's, that's all the stuff we're dealing with now is that, gee, like if we just, if we just throw everything into this economy thing, then it doesn't, it might, it might produce the, the richest economy, but it might not produce the best society or the best environment um, which going back to the conversation we had in our in our last episode, you know, is the context in which in which all this stuff is happening. And it seems like yeah, and the yeah. and the ability as human beings, right? Like I think to own what we value and exchange reasons about it, right? Like to 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 get together and talk about what we value. Like I think that's maybe I think what money can do for us instrumentally. Like it it, it helps us track things a little bit. Like where where things are are going and and what we value and 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 what is important not just to us as individuals, but in, in the sort of collective zeitgeist. That's, I mean, that's right. And this is where I think it's, it's, it's been a kind of all over the place, free flowing conversation, but I think you and I are finding this thing, money, right? Like it's actually could be a tool for asking really good questions. And I think that's the problem. I think there's not enough people. I, I don't think there are enough conversations where we're looking at the thing in itself, like trying to analyze the, the, you know, if we're like fish, the water we're swimming in, or birds, like the air we're flying in. I think this is a really good exercise, which takes some intentionality, right? You, it, this is what you, you know, why you've created Basecamp and, and a lot of work you've done um, as your own personal vocation is getting people into spaces where they can ask questions about like big things that we're not asking questions about. Because we're just touching money all the time. We're touching it all the time, or we're right. exchanging it all the time, and most of us are not sitting thinking, "What is this thing?" And 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 what are the and what is it for? You know, I think that it's interesting when you when you kind of go into the economics textbooks, as sort of did in preparation for this, and say, like, and you kind of look up for the definition of money. What they actually define is what it is for, not what it is. Right? It's for it's a medium of exchange. Right? It's a social technology. This is how it's useful. Which is fine, but what it is, what it has become in society is a kind of thing that's valued in itself, which is like, like, you know, you're a billionaire, enough said, right? You are an important, valuable person because of the number of points that you've accumulated. Like we've turned it into, because you can use it for anything, it's kind of become everything. It's become the end in itself. 
And that seems to me to be the thing we need to explore more. It's like, okay, you know, what what is the money for? You know, if you've got a lot of money, what, what, so what are you going to do with those points? What is the point of it? And 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 to value those answers more than the number of points you have, because the reality is, and maybe that's maybe that's what I'm going to start doing. I'm just going to start talking about my points to myself because money it it, it has like the. It's got, there's so much going on in society that just sort of makes it, makes it alive. And, and, and it's kind of important to remember that money is not a living thing. <laughs> and so maybe if I just rename it for myself, it'll, it'll seem less alive. I talk about my points. Um, it's interesting. Also in the sixth century, the Hebrew prophets are writing and you get this, it's where at like kind of ethical monotheism is really developed. And the early Israelites, like you look at early... Ethical monotheism. I love how you just drop phrases like that. There you go. And Boom. assume me not to pause for a moment. Like, okay. Right, yeah, okay. it's a, it's not just one God, but it's directed towards a tel, an ethical telos. And so, right, right, um, right. And so, you know, like the the early Israelites were what was called henotheist, right? And so basically they thought their God was the best, but they didn't disbelieve in other gods. I mean, they're just thinking, well, all right, my, Yahweh. My God could beat up your God. Yeah, Yahweh, you get, we're praying that you can beat those gods up, right? It's like schoolyard kind of hijinks. But then you get these, like, you know, get the prophet Isaiah saying, basically that thing you're praying to, this little statue, is not real. Like, it's not, it's just a hunk of gold or, or, or copper or whatever. And so that's what's interesting because money has become this, it's almost what I think the Hebrew prophets would call an idol. It, it, it's taken on, it's been reified and then deified as if it's, it, as if it's really got a personality and if it's really got these things. And, and maybe we just need to demystify it. Let me... Yeah, demystify it and and I think recognize the other the other stores of value that we possess. Um, we tend to be, I think, reductionist about our personal wealth is really a question of how much money do you possess. Um, but to give a kind of strong contrasting example, so um, I was watching <laughs> I was watching a program here tonight called um, Great British Menu. It's a cooking show. I enjoy it. And they get these these uh, great chefs around the country here, and every episode they cook. And, and there's a theme each season, and the theme this season is innovation. So they've got to cook dishes that kind of celebrate British innovation. And, uh, and one person did a dish uh, about um, Tim Berners-Lee, who he basically you guys you guys and you guys over there in the U.S. you invented kind of the the, the backbone uh, architecture for uh, digital networks like ARPANET. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee kind of developed the HTML for the internet. Um, wow. And what's in, so he's, he's kind of one of the British innovative icons um, and he gave it free to the world. So, you know, unlike, uh, you know, kind of you know, like what, like the Zuckerbergs or, or the other tech titans who made billions of dollars on their ideas. He's like, no, this is just, this just makes sense for the world. Everybody start doing this. So, you know, he didn't he didn't cash in in the ways that he could have to the extent he could have on this idea that everyone has adopted. But you know what? I don't think there's anyone in this country that wouldn't answer his call if he called or said, like, I want to do this and I need those resources to it. I mean, he could get them. So so is his wealth measured in in like the number of points that he has in his personal account? I mean, that's one measure of it. But when you've when you've done you know if you when you've done things for other people that they 
they value extremely highly. Even if you haven't asked them for any money in return, you, you still have a kind of wealth in in your society. <laughs> like you can you can draw upon it for whatever you need to happen. And 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 we just don't think it that's just nearly not as real to us in in the kind of the way we talk in society as as the wealth that we can more easily measure um based on the price of your stock or you know or 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 the money in your bank account. And I think we do I mean, ourselves I mean, a disservice you, when we when we when we yeah, think you, of wealth you, in such reductionist ways. You look at Pope Francis, who has more influence? I mean, he's got to be in the top 10 of influencers in the world, right? He literally is under a vow of poverty. <laughs> right. It's an extreme like, example. He, but has to li- yeah. he has to be... No, I'm sure he eats nice meals and stuff. But his personal resources, if Pope Francis... I don't even know his credit score could get him an apartment. Like, <laughs> outside of the Vatican, right? Like, mm. Which is interesting because he's this person of tremendous influence and power who... If he resigned tomorrow and wanted to go play golf, he probably couldn't afford a decent golf membership. I mean, which is just interesting the way we value things. Mm. This was fantastic, I, my it's friend. Been fantastic. As always. You know, I yeah. Just to round round it up for me, like I I I look at the question we started with: What does money mean now? And what I hear in it is this personal challenge to explore: What does money mean to me? And and the more it I feel like there's this tension. The more it means to me, the more it's crowding out other things that could have meaning. And so how can I, you know, while while recognizing that it is this this powerful and wonderful social technology that that enables a, a complex and advanced economy to to emerge, while recognizing all of that, how can I create more space? It just in my own head, in my own life, to recognize um, other measures of value and make myself richer because of that. That that's what I that's what I personally hear in this question now after this conversation. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, um, and I want to encourage our listeners to um, to engage in this journey. And and if Chris and I can help you on it, reach out to us. I mean, our our emails are in the show notes. Our social media is in the show notes. We you know, we're on Clubhouse every Monday night. We're on Clubhouse. Well, Monday night my my yeah. time. I guess it's Monday afternoon for you. Exactly. Yeah. So we're there. So we would love to talk with you because you know life is a team sport. You don't do it alone. And so, um, yeah, we'd love to help come alongside you in your, in your journey. And this was great, Chris. Thank you for helping me think through something that like was challenging to think through. Yeah, thank you too. Do it again soon. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.